All right, so last week we left off talking about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We were going through all the baptism passages in the Gospels, if y'all remember. Um, there are certain things that are in all four Gospels, like the feeding of the 5,000. That's the only miracle that was recorded in every Gospel. Well, this passage about when John is telling one is coming after me, who I'm not fit to untie his sandals. That is also in all four Gospels, and, and it's also mentioned twice. And, so six times. So we were going through those. So we left off. We looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we're going to pick up with John 132. So turn with me to John 132. Oh, John chapter 1, verse 32. 132. 132. Oh, my, that doesn't go that far. Really? 131. 132. He said 132. He did. Oh. Oh, yeah. That would be chapter 1, verse 32. For all the, all the, for all the comedians out there. <laughs> So chapter 1, verse 32. Uh, well, let's start at 29. My Bible says this is John's witness. So the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on, whom, on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him. So that he might be manifested to Israel, I came, and there it is, plunging in water, okay, baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to plunge in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who plunges in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So there's that plunging in the Holy Spirit again. And then, of course, it's in Acts 1-5, where we are. But let's just do a quick uh, refresher here. Let's just read the beginning again of Acts 1. And uh, I've been reading it out of NASB. I'm going to read it this time out of uh, ESV. Well, anybody got an ESV? Or anybody want to write or read it? Read up through, I guess, to uh, to chapter 9, uh, verse 9. Chapter 9 Yeah, to verse 9, I mean. Okay. From starting at the beginning? Yeah. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father 
which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we read nine. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay. So you see right there in one five, it's that same deal again. John baptized with water, but very soon you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And just so we can finish out this thought, let's go to Acts eleven sixteen and see what that has to say. So this is Peter recounting the conversion of Gentiles, or the baptism of Gentiles into the church. So he's talking to the other believers, and he's saying, hey, this happened. He's, he's describing what happened. Uh, so we'll start reading in 15. This is Peter talking. He said, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, here it is, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And there's that one there by with again. I even looked at it on my phone. Every time that with is there, there's a little speech bubble, and you hit it, it comes and says RN. So that can be, that is, should be translated in, not with. That's a better translation. Because we don't get sprinkled with the Holy Spirit. We are plunged in the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism is, a plunging or a dipping or a going under. So he says, how he used to say, John plunged you in water, but you will be plunged in the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and just a quick, just notice that the gift here is the Holy Spirit, okay? That is the gift we're receiving here. It's not prophesying or you give, the Holy Spirit is the gift that we're receiving at the moment of salvation. And therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave us, also after beginning in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Amen to that. Thank God for that. So there you go. That's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, this, you know, it's just let me just say this. There's a difference between this initial plunging in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. We we're filled. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit at all times. It says many times after this that you know, well, we ain't got to it yet. But that Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit actually descends, God is with us again, and the, the the believers in the room are filled. Many times after that, it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is an ongoing thing, right? And 
So we're going to see how the apostles prayed for that. But um, let's just look. Let's look at Ephesians five eighteen. Actually, Kevin uh, talked about this the other night. Ephesians five eighteen. Now this is not talking about the initial filling of the Spirit at salvation. This is talking about something else. <clears throat> well, we'll just start reading at 15. Ephesians 5.15 Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men, making the most of your time, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always give the thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of of Christ. So let's look at what that says here. So, but be filled with the Spirit. And my notes in my Bible send me to Acts two four, to Acts four eight, and which I have all these here too. But let's just look at what the note says here, because these are all connected passages. Okay. <laughs> But true communion with God is not induced by drunkenness, but by the Holy Spirit. Paul is not speaking of the Holy Spirit's indwelling or the baptism by Christ with the Holy Spirit. Remember, that's what we talked about. This baptism, we're being baptized by Christ into the Holy, in the Holy Spirit. Because every Christian is indwelt and baptized by the Spirit. At the time of salvation, he is rather giving the command for believers to live continually under the influence of the Spirit by letting the word control them, pursuing pure lives, confessing all known sin, dying to self, surrendering to God's will, depending on his power in all things. Being filled with the Spirit is living in the conscious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, letting his mind through the word dominate everything that is thought and done. Being filled with the Spirit is the same as walking in the Spirit, and he says, see notes on Galatians. So, that's, so let's just be aware of that. We, although we are plunged in the spirit of salvation, we are we can be continually filled with the spirit, and we can so that just goes without saying we can be not filled. We can grow cold, like Kevin says. If you have a lump of pile of hot coals and you put your coal way off over here, well, that coal is going to potentially go out, and get cold. So we gotta just be aware of that. So so we talked about the spirit. We talked about the baptism of the spirit. So now let's talk about the job of the church after we're baptized into the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus tell us to do? So let's go back to Acts chapter 1. Uh, go to verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth or to the end of the world. So let's see what this is what jumped out at me here. First thing the disciples say, well, is, it, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, nope, not doing that now. And he changes the subject on them. I mean, basically, he just says, this is not for you. This is not what you're going to be about right now. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be clothed with power, and you're going to be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem. Remember we talked about the theme or the, the outline. Jesus went up. Holy Spirit came down. The disciples went out. So we're still in the going up part. But if you look at verse 8, you know, this is Luke's outline. This is like the key verse Acts, where he tells them what, we're, what you're going to do. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, that's verses 1 through 7, right? And in all Judea, that's 8 through 11. That's the surrounding area around Jerusalem. It's like the county. Jerusalem is the city. Judea is the county, you'd say. And then Samaria, that's 8 through 11. Judea and Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth is 12 through 28. So that's kind of how the book progresses. Everything is Jerusalem to start with. That's the epicenter of everything going on. And then, it, and then it'll spread to the surrounding area. Then it'll spread to Samaria. Then all the way to the ends of the earth. And it spreads like a wildfire. And um, it caused quite the ruckus among the, among all the, the nations. And I got a note here. If you look at page 18 of my... This is my commentary I'm using. It's by... Uh, it's good, too. I'm really enjoying it. By R. Kent Hughes. It's called Acts, the Church of Fire from the Preaching the Word series. So he, he's got a quote in here from another author, who uh, Alexander McLaren. And he, uh, he has a footnote here. This is in chapter 1, note 4. This is from his book, Exposition of Holy Scripture, from 1974. That's where this, this little quote comes from. So this is Alexander McLaren. He says this. Barbarian, Scythian, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, clasped hands and sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus. They were written, okay, just, just stop and think about what that's saying, okay? This is, there's no diversity, equity, inclusion going on in first century uh, Near East. This is, uh, this would be just unheard of, unprecedented, just crazy talk when you say that. So let's read it again. Barbarian, Scythian, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, clasped hands and sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus. They were ready to break bread. Sorry. They were ready to break all other bonds. 
and yield to the uniting forces that streamed out from his cross. There had never been anything like it. No wonder that the world began to babble about sorcery and conspiracies and complicity and unnameable vices. That's Alexander McLaren from 1974. So this caused quite the stir when all this starts happening. Of course, that's jumping ahead, but it's just, I just wanted to give you all that outline. Okay? Jerusalem, all the events, 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria, 8 through 11. And then to the ends of the earth, 12 through 28. And uh, we can see that because in Romans, let's look at Romans 15, 22. Paul says something here church in Rome that is um, adjacent to what we're talking about here. I guess I can't think of a better word. 1522. So let's see what he says to the church at Rome here. Okay, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, when I hear what he says, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So he's telling them, hey, when I'm, I'm on my way to Spain, so I'm going to stop in and say howdy on my way. But why is he going to Spain? Spain is the end of the earth at this time. The maps, when you go, go past Spain, the map just says, here there be dragons. They don't know about the rest of the world. So to them, this is the end of the world. And so Paul's taking this seriously. He says, I'm going to Spain. So um, another thing I want to notice is when he tells them, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit go upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Now that word is marturo, which can also be translated martyr. So you could, we know that all these men ended up being martyrs. Most all of them, all the apostles, or at least they tried to martyr them all. <clears throat> so what is Jesus saying here? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my martyrs, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Siberia. And you will even be my martyrs to the remotest parts of the earth. Something else is these are the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples on earth. This is the last thing he said. And we, we need to take very close attention to that. He did not say change culture. He didn't say take over the government. He said, you will be my martyrs to the whole world. And he, as of yet, he hasn't returned and changed that, that mandate. So that is our mandate. Now, here's my question. Are we Martyrs, are we willing to be for the word of Christ?
if, and for the for the for our confession, if it ever came to that, that's we need to ask ourselves that and pray about that because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, in this context, it's it's translated witness. Okay? I'm not saying that's what Jesus meant, but I'm saying that's what Jesus might have meant. He used the word Barturo, and these men ended up being martyred, and a lot of others too, Stephen, you know. So, I know that's heavy, but that's what we're called to. We're called to stand for Christ in the face of death. He said... Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And if that means whatever, we need to be ready for whatever might come. Do we confess Christ in all things and in all situations? Because I'm telling you, one of, one of my biggest fears is when they say, Neil, I'm scared to stand. Because I value my life too much. Or when they say stand, I'm scared to kneel. I, I think about that. Especially since I started this. Because that's what he said. You will be my martyrs. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So. No. That's what we're going to talk about. That. So witness is the mission. We are to be his witnesses, okay? That is the mission. When he had, so when they asked, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He didn't even answer. He just changed the subject. He just said, nope, that's not for you to know. In other words, he said, that, that's not for you to worry about. My father is in control of that. We know what we're doing. But they're, they're giving some instruction later. But right then, Jesus just changed the subject on them and says, no, you're going to be my witnesses. That's later. Now This is now. And I think it's just interesting the way they worded that. Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Because Jesus had told them, when I, when I, wait a minute, I'm not going to go into that. I don't want to do, let's just skip that. Uh, and we know the world is the extent of the mission because he tells them, right? You're going to be my witnesses here and you're going to go. So the mission is to witness. The extent of the mission is to the whole world. And the power is the Holy Spirit. Because aside from that, we're just, we're just, we have no ability to convict anybody of anything. All we can do is tell them the message. But without the convicting of the Holy Spirit, it's all for naught. Remember on the first week, I talked about logos, ethos, and pathos. That's kind of a theme he, he, he carries in this book. We'll, we'll probably talk about this more as things happen in the narrative. So the logos is the message, is the gospel. That's the that's what we tell people. It's the message we're bringing. The good news that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself and he will give us his righteousness in the place of our dirty rags. The ethos, so that's our theology, okay? The ethos is our walkology. It's the life of the church. It's how we live before an unbelieving world to back up our witness. Because we can tell them all day that Jesus 
did this, but if we live like heathens and pagans, well, what are the, we just look like a bunch of hypocrites. And I would just say that a big problem we have in, in the, at least in our nation today, is everybody thinks church is bunch full of a bunch of hypocrites because they they say this, but they live this. And so let's not be that way. And then the pathos is our passion, our I would say the power of our witness, which is our indwelling of the Spirit and His filling of ourselves, like His filling of our cup. What time is it? Okay, well, let's go on a little bit more then. Well, yeah, let's go a little bit more. So after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, what a, what a thing that must have been. See, I believe this is not a, this is, the Shekinah glory. This is, this is the, you know, the light of God's presence that Jesus is being received into. And uh, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Now, white clothing—that's Bible code for angels. Okay, so these are two angels. And they said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky?" This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So, basically they're saying, hey, it's work. He just gave you a job to do. He's coming back in his timing. At just the right time, he'll be back. Um, and this one thing you're, never, you're not going to see in the book of Acts is people watching current events, checking their calendars, and looking at the sky. We're not going to see that. We're going to see witnesses spreading the word of Christ to a dying world. That is the mission. So I'm going to just go ahead and say we're not going to do any eschatology in this in this action class unless, we, unless it comes up in the, in, the, in the text. Just like this where he says, are you now restoring the kingdom of Israel? Uh, that's a question about the end times. And he says, nope, not now. Let's move on to this. We're going we're gonna to witness now. And then even the angels say, men of Galilee, stop looking in, into the sky. Stop stargazing. You've been given a task. Let's be about it. That's what really jumped out at me in this passage. They've been told twice now. Are you going to restore the kingdom? No. Stop looking at the sky and get to work. And so they returned to Jerusalem from the amount called Olive, which is where they were when Jesus was taken up. Right? He's going to return right back there again. He will. His foot will sit down on the Mount of Olives, and he will come with his clouds, with his angels, and he will sit on his glorious throne. That is the throne of David. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That's about half a mile. That's what they were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. It was about half a mile from their home. And just a little interesting context, cultural context. One way they would get around this Sabbath injunction was the, the rabbis come up with this rule that said if you have an item from your home, 
anywhere else you, you could call that your home. So on Friday, before the Sabbath would start, they would walk a half mile from their house and put down a candle or something from their home, and then they could say, this is my home. So they walk half a mile, oh, I'm home. Now I can walk another half a mile. <laughs> yeah, that is observing the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. That's what that, that's what yeah. that is. Yeah, I think it's also self-justification. Yeah, yeah, that's right. looking for yeah. That's definitely not observing the spirit of the law. So anyway, so just know that that's about a half a mile, and they think that this uh, this room, this upper room, is the same upper room where the spirit was promised. What we looked at back in John, when he promised the coming, they were in the upper room where the last supper happened. Most scholars believe this is the same room. It was in the city of David on what's called Mount Zion. So, so the temple is on Mount Moriah. There are several mountaintops in Jerusalem. The temple sits atop Mount Moriah, which interestingly is where Abraham brought Isaac to be sacrificed and God said nope I will provide that and Jesus was crucified on the slopes of Mount Moriah and then if you go so you come down here's how Dr. Dykes he drew it out so you got Mount of Olives here the slopes go up this way alright right here you got the Temple Mount this is Mount Moriah where the temple sits here and you got these porches all around it, these porticos, and there's courts. And right through here is, is the creek running right here. That's called the Kidron Valley. What is that? It's a creek right here. I got, I got Between uh, Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane here, somewhere on the slopes. This is Mount Moriah. They think, you know, Christ was probably crucified somewhere on the slopes right here. Over here. About, about right here, they think is where the upper room, this is the city of David, that's the section, it sits atop Mount Zion, so from here, they would walk across the Kidron Valley, that's about a half a mile, that's how tight Dr. David said, he's been to Jerusalem many times, brings groups over there to tour all these sites, he said it's amazing, People are shocked at how close everything is together in these old, old world cities. But anyway, so that's about that half a mile. But where is he buried? Where was he laid to rest in comparison to that? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But we might see that later. But. Is that the same Kidron Valley? That's the same from the Old Testament, right? Yeah. And so, let's see. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. We, we believe this is the same upper room. Still the same same building, same place. And that is Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Let's just go ahead and well, we'll stop there. So one thing we'll say here is this is the last time 
that Mary is mentioned in Scripture. And the last thing we see her doing is praying with the disciples. Ain't nobody praying to Mary here. Mary is praying. She's a believer. I mean, and her and Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, you know, they were all kind of, mm, Jesus might have lost his mind a little bit here. Uh, this is a little kid that used to follow me around to the creek all the time, and I'd try to run him back, leave me alone. But they came to believe. But, uh, yeah, this is the last time Mary's mentioned. And then this next section, we probably won't cover this, but let's just, just real quick. When they when they say that they need to replace Judas and they cast lots and Matthias is chosen, it's, you know, this guy doesn't even address it. And what about Matthias? And yeah, what happens here? They're casting the lots and they're placing Matthias. Here's all I'm going to say about it. But Matthias is never mentioned again. And Jesus calls Saul of Tarsus personally and tells him, you will be my apostle to the Gentiles. And so what does that mean here? I, I really, that's why I'm just going to, I'm not going to, I don't know really what to tell y'all about this, this, this section where they, where they pick Matthias. I, I mean, it's here for a reason. I'm sure it wouldn't be there. The Holy Spirit had a reason for, for, for laying this to us. Maybe it was to show that, well, they were doing their will, really, and there was not, there's only supposed to be 12 apostles. Well, you know, that's, that's interesting you say that, because here's one thing I did notice. This just happens between, those, that's in that 10 days. And Jesus ascends, and there's 10 days before the Holy Spirit comes down, so, so they're kind of operating on their own here. They're just praying and worshiping for most of this time. And for some reason, Peter decides, well, we need to replace Matthias. You know, I, I don't want to read a lot into that. But if, if, but if this time they are basically without God, God is not with us at this point. You know, because Jesus went up. And so when the Holy Spirit came down, well, God is with us again. But for that 10-day stretch, they were kind of operating autonomously there. They, they were just waiting. And the casting lots, too, that was... Normal that was a normal Old Testament practice. Way yeah. to understand God's will. God's will. That's true. And so, and he bases that in some Old Testament prophecy that this should happen. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they they were disobe being disobedient. I'm not saying anything like that. What I'm saying is I don't really understand what this is supposed to convey. I don't have any application from this for us. So, that's all I'm going to say. You know, it happened. It was between the time. When they were waiting for the Spirit. And Matthias is never mentioned again. So well, this is it. Yeah. That kind of, maybe, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I, 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 so anyway. But the thing I want us to do here is they're praying continually because they are expecting what Jesus said to occur. Jesus said the Spirit's coming. And they believe that. And they're praying expectantly and they're believing expectantly. And I'm sure they were just on pins and needles, waiting and wondering, how, what is this going to look like? I mean, what, what's going to happen here? Are we all going to have to go back to the Jordan and be baptized again? I mean, what's what's going on here? So anyway, let me give you all one last little quote here from uh, Arcant News. 
I think this will be good for us to take away from this little section. So we're going to call this section done. Okay, chapter one is done. We've got the, we've got the mission. We've got the power and the extent. So that's what we're going to, this is what the whole rest of this book is going to be. But let's just look at this little. About expected prayer. That's what this whole section in this commentary is called. The disciples, what they were praying for, why they were praying, how they were praying. And so, <clears throat> there's two things I want to read here. In this little section, he's talking about um, R.A. Torrey. At one point, he was he says he was a tongue-tied, and his ministry was just not being fruitful until the power of the Spirit came on him. And he tells the story, but I'm just going to read the end of this. He goes, The primary problem with believers in this matter of the fullness of the Holy Spirit is their lack of believing expectancy. We believe it is possible for others, but not for us. We believe that R.A. Torrey experienced it, Jonathan Edwards and Corey Tinboom and Joni Erickson Tata, but, it's not, but it is out of our reach for some reason. Such thinking is misinformed. What needs to happen here? We do not have to broaden our belief or enlarge our understanding. We simply need to really believe and so act upon what we say we believe. Do we truly expect Christ to fill us with his Holy Spirit and thus empower our lives? Do we believe that's possible for us, in other words? Or is that only for John MacArthur? It's not. It's for, it's for any of us. We're all equal in, in the eyes of the Lord. And so he, here he is, a final word. As believers, we have received the full benefit of Christ's body and blood, yet we can never have enough of Christ. Almost always when I'm dining out, the waitress will say, can I warm your coffee? And I almost always respond, yes. No matter how hot the cup, given time and neglect, it becomes cold. Some of us need a spiritual warm-up. Some of us are almost empty. We need the refreshing filling or refilling of the Holy Spirit. Would you like the wind of the Spirit in your sails? Believe that Christ will do just as he said. Join the expectancy of the Upper Room Fellowship. Believe that it is possible not only for others, but that it will also happen to you. Ask expectantly. Ask him to fill your cup and make it overflow. Ask for the wonderful winds of God to fill your sails. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's from Luke 11, 13. And He has a little prayer here that I, I really like. It says, Oh God, forgive us for being content with our own resources. Help us to recognize our poverty and then to call to You for the riches of the power of the Holy Spirit. And once we ask, help us to expect You to answer and provide. Help us to continue ever in sincere, heartfelt prayer, knowing that without You, nothing good will transpire in our lives. May our sails be full with the wind of your spirit as we carry out high adventures for your glory. In your strength, in Jesus' name, amen.